from digitiki.com. Great night to go back to the old songs, the old melodies, the old chants of old Hawaii. So from the Hawaiian Islands, land of summertime eternal, the trade winds send out a hearty invitation clear across the blue Pacific to you. Welcome to the Quiet Village. Welcome back to the Quiet Village for another visit. I am your host, Digitiki, coming to you direct from Digitiki.com, broadcasting in the heart of the Quiet Village. And I've got my Mai Tai with me right here, and I've got a very special guest. Joining me via satellite from his home in Hawaii for the full hour is Mr. Paul Conrad. He is the original pianist and arranger for the Gene Rains Group. He is also the artist behind one of the most sought-after rare exotic LPs, Exotic Paradise, and that's the one with the toucan on it. Uh, Paul is 82 years old, still living in a suburb of Honolulu, and still performing regularly. If you're a collector of Exotica and or a longtime listener of this show, you may already know that there is precious little known about Mr. Rains. Uh, the only thing anyone knows is from the scant liner notes from the three LPs which he released in 1661, I believe. During the production of the recent Gene Rain CD compilation, of which I was privileged to be a part of, one of the production team, Randy Poe, whom I just had recently on the show talking about the compilation, he did an exhaustive search for information about Gene Rains for the liner notes to the CD, and I can tell you, he found precious little. Gene Rain still remains a bit of an enigma, but he did manage to find Paul Conrad, and he passed on Paul's contact information to me. Paul Conrad was deep in the heart of the exotica scene in Hawaii from day one. He worked with and knew quite well not only Gene Rains, but Martin Denny, Arthur Lyman, Ethel Azama, Alfred Apaka, Webley Edwards of Hawaii Calls fame, and a host of other stars from the islands. He's also worked with one of the great jazz vocalists of the 20th century, Anita O'Day, and helped Bette Midler get started in her career, I kid you not. Paul is still performing in Hawaii. In fact, his new specialty is playing Japanese weddings. And as I learned from him, his date book is full these days. So... Hot from his gig at a Japanese wedding this afternoon, welcome, Paul Conrad, to the Quiet Village. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Aloha to you, too. And, and uh, oh, by the way, I just want to say he's joining us from Hawaii, where he's still living there. So you, you, um, you, are, born from, you are born where? In, uh, actually, uh, Stowe Township, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but we didn't have a post office there, so uh, my birthplace, we, we, we use the, the suburb McKee's Rocks <laughs> as, a, as, a, as, a, uh, as an address. So let's, let's just say I'm from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. <laughs> so, That's yeah. a much colder climate than Hawaii. <laughs> oh, substantially so, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, varied. Yeah. Because... Uh, uh, 
I don't think I've ever seen anything over about 92 degrees here, something like that. And sometimes it would make it all the way to 93 in Pittsburgh in the summertime. <laughs> How was your gig today? One of the things I have to do at this particular chapel, different chapels have somewhat different schedules. And for this one company, um, uh, uh, they let the guests in early, and I'm supposed to be there to play for them when they do. So I play mostly Hawaiian songs. Yeah. And and uh, right when I was in the middle of one Hawaiian song, uh, the father of the groom, or not without really a word, just sort of dropped a thousand a thousand yen note on the keyboard. <laughs> nice. And, and, and that comes out to about nine dollars and forty cents. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, it sounds better when you say a thousand yen. Yeah. You know, people say, gee, it's expensive in Japan. It, it costs $100 to get from the airport to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's okay because it's a 40 miles from Narita Airport to, to, <laughs> to Tokyo. So $100 isn't all, all that. But, uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, okay. And then another thing I never brought up, well, maybe because it has nothing to do really with what you might call exotic music. But uh, I don't think, oh, I know I didn't mention that I'm responsible for Beth Midler's success. <laughs> no, you didn't mention uh, that. <laughs> um, I wrote her audition arrangements to take to New York with her. <laughs> really? Uh, you, you know she's from here. No, I well, didn't know that. Oh, oh, she's sort of from here. Um, she, uh, I... I if I if I figure my history correctly, I think it might have been towards the end of, or at least during World War II, that uh, she was born in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the family came here uh, when she was like two years old, and her father became a civilian uh, house painter for the Navy, and oh. they and they lived and they lived in the Navy housing, and she attended Radford High School, which was. Uh, uh, well, and right in the middle of the district that included Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, at, uh it was in uh, oh, probably about 1961 or two, somewhere in there. Um, a, a guy uh, who was I called him my personal historian. He was a, <laughs> a newspaper society columnist, and any time something happened in my life like getting married or something like that, he, he would put it in his column. <laughs> uh, it, so it was always where I was playing or what I was doing. And uh, he was also into theater, and he was he was uh, doing some stuff with the Honolulu Theater for Youth. And uh, they were going to uh, do a... Uh, the theater for Youth did their shows in an elementary school in one of the uh, residential districts. And they would bus in kids from all over Honolulu to see performances of the play during school hours. Mm-hmm. He uh, he asked me if I could put together a quartet to be in the in the pit because there were there were songs and I could do the charts when well, there's just lead sheets on the, on the charts. Sure. I went I went to the went to the first rehearsal, and and uh, uh, there is this busty eighteen year old who had just graduated from high school, and Radford High School, and. Uh, at the rehearsal, oh, she sang her butt off. I think this is good. And uh, so we did you know, the show for a week or so, you know, for all the grade school kids and everything. And it was it was fun. It was good. So then I just went my way. And about two years later, she called me and said, "I am going to New York to seek my fortune." 
could you write out some uh, um, audition arrangements for me for some piano parts? And I still have the pencil copies. In fact, I dug them up just so I could tell you about this. Wow. And, uh, and she was probably only about 20 or 21 years old at the time. Oh, and so I, I, I still, I, I just dug them out. I still have the pencil copies in front of me. So I did the, the pencil copies and then I inked them. Charged her mm -hmm. 75 bucks. And off she went and the yeah. rest is history. The rest is history, exactly. <laughs> wow. So I'm, I'm responsible for her success. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you got to Hawaii. I had done a, a five-year stretch in the music department uh, of uh, uh, what was then Carnegie Tech. It's Carnegie Mellon University now. So anyway, that, that was my alma mater. And uh, I, I even, uh, for three of my five years there, um, I, I would spend Saturday afternoon wearing miniskirts uh, because I was in the guilty band oh. <laughs> playing for football games. <laughs> and so, upon graduation, uh, the uh, uh, the Korean War had ended, but they were still drafting people, and I was subject to the draft, and uh, so I did get drafted, and. Uh, uh, I did some basic training at Fort Knox. Never, never did see the gold. I was going to uh, say, my, <laughs> <laughs> never did see any gold. Just a lot of dust. <laughs> and and uh, uh, then I got uh, uh, assigned because of uh, uh, they, uh, the army was making a, a definite effort to get people into the right kind of jobs. There are a lot of jokes about that, but now they, they, they gave you a lot of tests and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up doing my second eight weeks of basic training in the band training unit at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And I was getting all set up to stay there and be in one of the bands at Fort Jackson. There was the 101st Division Band, 3rd Army Band. And they, they liked the way I played piano and I could do all kinds of gigs. I was working gigs in Columbia, South Carolina and dating girls from the uh, University of South Carolina, and I was all set to stay there. And I got my orders at the end of my uh, eight weeks of training, and it said, "You start back." What the heck is that? And that is U.S. Army Pacific. Oh. And they, they they put five of us on a train and set us to San Francisco, and put us on a boat, set us to we pulled into Pearl Harbor, and got in a staff car, and they took us to the band at Fort Shafter. And that's how I arrived in Hawaii, and I. I finished my uh, two-year term in the Army uh, as a percussionist in the 264th Army Band and also as an organist at the chapel that's goes through barracks. Uh, and that was on the side. It's just a G.I. man alive. They give you a private tank that features a little device called fluid drive. I didn't feel like packing to go back to Pittsburgh. So I just stayed in Hawaii. I don't blame you. And uh, started working in Waikiki right away, and then uh, got hooked up with, as you said, with uh, guys like uh, Martin Denny and Arthur Lyman doing arrangements for them while I was doing piano bar gigs on my own. And, uh, you were telling me that at the time when you were there, Martin Denny was just a solo pianist, right? He hadn't really formed his yeah, band. He had, uh, he had been in Brazil before where he was uh, he was accompanist for... Uh, uh, I can't remember. One of the more famous French singers, of all things, <laughs> singing in Brazil was Martin Denny playing <laughs> piano. And then I don't know why he came to Hawaii, but uh, 
right in the middle of uh, uh, Waikiki, which was a very nice place at the time. Uh, he was playing at a place called Donna Beach Colors. Another thing that's kind of might be kind of funny. Peter Camus at the Camus restaurant. Oh yeah. Because oh, you, you know that. Okay. Yes. He, he, during, during, during World War II, people would drink anything that had alcohol in it. And he was able to get his hands on, on gallons and gallons of dry vermouth. No oh. gin, but just dry vermouth. And so at the end of the war, here he is stuck with tank cars full of dry vermouth. And so he started charcoal grilling shrimp with and drenched them in dry vermouth, and it became very popular. So ah. he got rid of his vermouth that way. Now, is the Canless restaurant still in Hawaii? Uh, no, it's it, not, and I don't know if there's still one. Uh, there was one in, I think, Seattle or somewhere. Yeah, I don't know if that one's still there or not. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. I had, I had no idea. So, so anyway, uh, Martin Denny was, was, was playing solo piano. Uh, 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 we're talking Quiet village, and the frogs out in the pond would start doing making their noises, and then the the, the, the percussion section would start making their non-percussive noises. And you so, you also worked with Arthur Lyman when he split off from Denny, right? Arthur called me. Oh, because. I had done a, a, a little bit of arranging for, for Marty. Not that he couldn't, it's just that he was getting so successful he didn't have time to put together all the arrangements that he needed to for his recordings. And uh, uh, Arthur called me and said, hey man, I got, uh, I got three things. I, I got a group, I got a gig, and I got a recording contract. What I don't have is arrangements. Can you do something for me? And so that's how I got hooked up with, with uh, Arthur and uh, did uh, uh, a, 
a good portion of the early original Taboo album, his first album. Mm-hmm. Right now, you had a really interesting story about the recording session for Taboo. Oh, oh man, yeah. This engineer, a recording engineer, uh, I think his last name was Vaughn. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, he had come over from uh, uh, from Los Angeles, and at that time, uh, at the Hawaiian Village Hotel where Arthur was working, uh, there was a uh, a, a a building, well, it was a dome-shaped aluminum building called the Aluminum Dome. And this, uh, Mr. Vaughn saw this, uh, this dome and said, oh, I got to record in here and I would like to record that, that, that exotic sound that Arthur is giving us his group. And so, so the, the uh, session was set up and, uh, the first session for the Taboo album was going to be at, uh, nine o'clock in the morning. And uh, I had uh, one, I had written one original for it, uh, the one called China Clipper, and then I'd done some, some arrangements like Burning the Whole Walking and some of those other things. So, and so I was going to be, for my arrangements and, and composition, I was going to be the piano player on the album. Mm. So I got there about 8.30 for this session, and uh, 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 nobody was in the dome yet, and so I went to a coffee shop, and there's Arthur and his wife, and his wife is pregnant, but she's having a nice big breakfast, and Arthur is getting what they call sympathetic morning sickness. <laughs> he, he's doing the morning sickness. He's struggling with a glass of tomato juice. <laughs> with, his, with the recording of his first album coming up in less than half an hour. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and that must have been the secret to the whole thing, because the album went gold. <laughs> yes, that was a great album. Taboo album. And you, you wrote the song China Clipper that appeared on that album. And then his next album called Buona A. Uh, I don't think it went gold, but it was uh, also a commercial success. Uh, so then Arthur had a little bit of clout with, with uh, I think the record company was called Hi Fi. Yes. Since he had had two, two successful albums, yeah. So, uh, so he had enough clout that he said, I want to do a jazz album because he was a jazz man at heart. And so that's when Days of Jazz was produced, and I composed Days of Jazz as a title song for it. Yes, I was so excited to hear you you had actually penned that song. That is a wonderful tune. Fragments of Hawaiian melodies in it, and that's that's where the plays are. Oh. And uh, uh, if, if you if you know some Hawaiian music and you listen real hard, you can hear them as mm. the song progresses. For fun, you, you know, I think it's some people call a Hawaiian turnaround. 
which is this. Right. That's, that's how it starts. <laughs> and then a little bit of uh, a war chant. Ah. Uh. And then, did you recognize that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then, and then, same thing. Yeah, once again, the turnaround and while in war chat. And then comes a little bit of a song, Kapu Umano. And then a takeoff on Aloha Oi. Aloha uh, well, anyway. That's fantastic. You know, I never put that together, that those were little Hawaiian uh, pieces. But now that you played it, it's so obvious. Yeah, I, I'm too subtle. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> recognizes it. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's, that's, those are the ladies of jazz. You also worked with Ethel Azama, who... who uh... Well, on and off for six years, yeah. And, uh, oh, oh, uh, uh, can I mention the story on the first album that she did? That, yes, uh, yes, Martin, please Martin do. Denny produced. Martin liked her, and uh, even though she was more uh, semi-jazz-oriented, like, she was a like a fan of somebody like June Christie, you know, mm-hmm. in fact... Uh, I got to meet June Christie, and uh, I got to meet her. And even I even taught June Christie a, a, a Japanese song when she was on her way to Japan. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Marty uh, was being very successful with Liberty Records. He he had clout there, and so he mm-hmm. said, "Hey, I got this uh, girl. I'd like to, I'd like to do a, a, a sort of an exotic album with her singing songs." And and, and he said, uh, now, "Since uh, since Paul Conrad is." Uh, working with her on the jazz stuff that he knows how to do exotic stuff he would be the uh, ideal arranger for it and so I was and he said and then we'll record with my group only with Paul on piano instead of me mm-hmm. and uh, so, so that's what we did that's how uh, oh, exotic dreams I think would be, be so you're the thing. you're the pianist on exotic dreams yes oh. except except as, as sort of as a courtesy, I, kind of, well, I, mean, I, I guess you'd call it a courtesy. I wrote one arrangement that required two pianos, and I, and I allowed Marty to play. <laughs> I think there's a song, it's a Latin song called Nightingale. Uh-huh. I think there's two, two pianos on that. Nightingale. Julius Wecker was playing vibes. He he uh, he became eventually leader of the Baja Marimba band on the song "Lazy Afternoon." You know, it's a lazy afternoon, and the beetle bugs are humming, all that. Yeah. Uh, the harmonic structure of that song is such that I could do this. I had Julius on vibes rolling uh, an octave C, you know, one one mallet on the higher C and another mallet on the lower C, and mm-hmm. just going. Through the whole song, he doesn't change a note. <laughs> uh. If you ever have a chance to listen to it. it's a lazy afternoon, and the beetle bug. 
And the tulip trees are blooming And there's not another human in view But us two Yeah, because it starts on an F, F minor 7th chord and you can put a C in that and then there's uh, on a B flat seven, you can make the C as the ninth. Nine. And uh, even on the bridge, you can keep playing that C. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was uh, to me, I thought it was a nice exotic song. There were a couple of uh, local boys who were in, the, in, in on the recording, and uh, uh, um, two ladies in the shade of the banana tree. You hear a lot of Hawaiian pigeon. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> right. Hey, brother. When you flying too high, like birds sweeping the sky, and pulse make you to pause. The main reason and cause to ladies in the shade of the banana tree, how delectable, desirous they can be in the black, black shade of the banana tree. I'm going to ask you about um, Gene Rains. You know, how did you oh, get hooked yeah. up with uh, the Gene Rains group? Okay, what happened there is um, while I was uh, doing all the stuff we've been talking about, you know, uh, Doing charts for uh, Marty and for uh, for Arthur and and uh, Ethel and some other stuff. Uh, I was doing a piano bar gig at, at a, a restaurant called the, the Gourmet. And it's, oh, oh! Let me get into this. Um, can I mention about the three odors on Kalakaua Avenue? Yes, I was going to ask you about the three smells, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. On Kalakaua, which is the, uh, that's that's the main drag of Waikiki. Uh, there was, yeah, the three smells at nighttime in 1957 were plumeria blossoms because every 50 yards there was a lay stand where little old Hawaiian ladies would be sitting make, making lays and selling them for a little 50 cents a dollar, mm-hmm. you know, and, and eating mostly plumeria flowers, which were and still are very plentiful. Okay, that was one smell. And the second smell was charcoal. Because except for the gourmet restaurant and a few other places, uh, the only thing you could really get to eat at a restaurant was, was charcoal grilled steak and lobster. <laughs> and every place had its charcoal fire going. And the third smell was kerosene, because they're called either luau torches or tiki torches. Anyway, mm-hmm. they were they were in front of every place. <laughs> so you. So you you got the, the charcoal, the plumeria, and the kerosene, and that, those are the Waikiki smells. It, it sounds nice, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, I, if I wasn't working, I would be walking up and down Kalakaua. <laughs> <laughs> so you said Gene Rains was in the Air Force Band while you were in the Army yeah. Band, right? Yeah. Now, he had probably been in for some time, uh, so I'm, I'm sure he was older than I, because... Uh, he was a sergeant in the Air Force, and I never made it past PFC in the Army. <laughs> so, yeah, he wasn't. And what, uh, what the deal was was, um, too, there was plenty of military. And and uh, so there were plenty of officers' clubs, NCO clubs, enlisted men's clubs. And we, as military musicians, weren't allowed to play civilian jobs. Uh, we were not allowed to compete with civilian musicians. Really? But, uh, yeah, that was a deal that the military had with the musicians' union. 
and, and that was cool because I think it was fair because mm-hmm. then I became a civilian musician and I just assumed that I have military <laughs> competing with me, right? Because <laughs> there were some good musicians there. Uh, so, uh, uh, and and we were interchangeable. For instance, uh, uh, the band I started working with first was led by a uh, uh, a Navy petty officer. Uh, but uh, uh, there were Army guys in it, and I think there was one Marine in the, in the group too. And we played off this clubs and NCO clubs, etc. And Gene Rains had his own group, which had some Air Force guys in it. But uh, when he needed a, a new piano player. Uh, I, I was getting fairly popular, so he called me, and so uh, I, I played a lot of gigs with the Gene Rains group. In fact, it, it was a show that we did at Pearl Harbor, where the MC of the show was also the MC of a, of a nightclub in Waikiki, and uh, and he liked the way I accompanied him when he sang. And I was getting out of the army in just a couple of weeks, and he said, "Hey, come and play at our place." And so that's the first job. That's the place. Well, I did accompany uh, the likes of uh, Anita O'Day and Herb Jeffries and, and uh, Dick Contino of all people. Yeah. Those uh, are not so, small uh, names, too. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, and, and, and that was fun. Uh, Herb Jeffries did a lot of fun. I tell you some stories about him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and uh, the, uh, uh, Herb Jeffries was in kind of a, some sort of a spiritual trip, and he invited the composer of Nature Boy to come over and join him. Oh, and, and he was dating Tempest Storm, the stripper at the time. He <laughs> married her. He invited uh, Eden Abez, right? He's the yes, composer. Eden yeah. Abez, who came over and showed up and got off the plane wearing sandals and a white robe. <laughs> and, uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, now I, I never confirmed this, but it is said that uh, he just sort of wandered around Honolulu and uh, found a tree that he liked in somebody's yard on St. Louis Drive and just moved into the tree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've heard stories about him in L.A., like living under the the H and the Hollywood sign and... And, you know, oh, okay. Well, the tree, the tree on St. Louis Drive is not that far out, then, I guess. No, that sounds about right. <laughs> and, and uh, the, however, um, now, he, uh, you might expect someone like that to be a vegetarian, but there was a, uh, a, uh, a reception for Herb Jeffries when he started, and there was a buffet table, and <laughs> I was reaching for a piece of salami, and he was reaching for the same piece of salami, and and, and then he just backed off and said, "No, that's cool, man. <laughs> you know, you take it." <laughs> but he was going to have salami. <laughs> there was a lot of fun going on in the fifties. It's yeah. it sounds like it was a real hopping place back then. Yeah, yeah. Here's another funny thing. Waikiki uh, you know, is just uh, jammed now. Uh, in 1957. I could drive to my gig on Kalakaua Avenue, which started at 9 o'clock, and park on the street in front of the place at 8.30. Oh, I can't imagine that Literally. now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> wow. So on, weekends, on weekends, I might have to go into one of the back streets. Oh. <laughs> you started um, as both the piano player and the arranger for Gene Rains, right? When, what year was that? Oh, a- yeah, 1959. 59. Yeah, yeah, because I'd been playing at the Gourmet since early 1957, and it was I did almost three years there. 
And you, and, you uh, also told me about having to buy Martin Denny's Celeste. Oh, oh, yeah, because um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Celeste was sort of an important uh, part of, of the uh, of the whole thing. I, incidentally, Tchaikovsky gets credit for in, inventing the Celeste. Really? <laughs> yeah. Gene had just gotten out of the Air Force, and he saw uh, the way that uh, Arthur and uh, Marty were uh, being successful. And uh, he wanted to have that same kind of success, and he thought I might help him uh, achieve that because of my experience with those groups, and that I was getting tired of playing for the off-key off singers in a piano bar. Uh, and, so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, yeah, okay, let's give it a shot. And, and he, he had a job right away. Uh, we, we, we had a semi-outdoor job at the Hawaiian, at the Kaiser Hawaiian Village. Uh-huh. Uh, and... Uh, so you you bought uh, that Celeste from Martin Denny, right? Oh, oh yeah, I didn't get to that. Uh, uh, so yeah, neither the neither the Celeste uh, people from Music Exotic, and I had I had heard uh, maybe from Marty himself that he had gotten a console Celeste because the uh, the one he had been using for the first couple of years uh, was a uh, was a just a uh, a pickup instrument. You know, he just put it on top of the piano. And, and no legs, but now he got one that had legs and uh, wheels and everything. Mm-hmm. And so when I heard that, I said, "Oh, maybe he's willing to part uh, with his with his little Celeste, which was an adequate instrument. It just wasn't that fancy." Mm-hmm. And uh, so I talked to him about it, and it ended up that I paid him one and a half arrangements for the Celeste. <laughs> 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 And uh, then I got paid for the other half of the arrangement. And, and as I was leaving, I had already mentioned that, that Julius Wechter was his vibes player at that time. And as I was leaving down the beachcombers with uh, Celeste in hand, you know, Julius Wechter said, Hey, Marty, you finally got rid of that dog. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that is the Celeste that we hear on the Lotus Land album, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's it. But you also hear it on, on uh, any of the early Marty Martin Denny albums. Okay. You know, like Quiet Village and So that's gone. Oh, and and uh, in later years, let's see, not, uh, you know, the, the section of Hawaii Kai where I've been living for the last 40 years, uh, Marty, when he retired, moved to a, a very nice apartment building in, in Hawaii Kai, about a mile and a half from, from uh, where I am. Uh-huh. And... Uh, he was just in retirement, and uh, all he did, and this is why he lived into his 90s, I think, he, he swam every day. He really? He the pool and just did lengths on the pool. He loved it. So I, I probably uh, lived to the 90s because I hate water. And he loved it. So one day, I, I, I still had the Celeste, and I was taking up room because I wasn't using it on any gigs. And I, I called Marty, and I said, hey, as a keepsake, would you like your... Celeste back. And he said, yeah, that would be nice. So I took it over to him. And then I found out that he gave it away to some up-and-coming young kid who was, uh, who was trying to make it musically. Really? And I thought that was great. And that was a great thing for him to do. Oh, Marty, Marty, Marty was a great person. He was a very generous man. Yeah. That's, that's the Celeste story. Yeah. 
So now, while you were playing with the Gene Rains group, you guys were in the Shell Bar, right? At the same time with uh, oh. with uh, yeah, Alfred Apaka. We well, Apaka, Alfred Apaka was, was about 30 or 40 feet away from us in what was called the Tapa Room. And mm-hmm. that was that was like the big showroom of the, of the Hawaiian Village Hotel. Keep your eyes on the hands that tell the story. Keep your eyes on the hands. By the way, the Shell Bar... Uh, was uh, was one of the uh, places featured in the uh, TV show called Hawaiian Eye. Right. And what happened there was they did all the outside scenes in Hawaii, but they sent a crew in, <clears throat> into the shell bar to take measurements, and they built an exact replica of the shell bar in Hollywood. But... <laughs> 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 I don't know why they didn't want to film in the, in the shell bar, but they didn't. Well, you know <laughs> what? I'll, I'll tell you an interesting, just an anecdote, which is kind of funny. You wrote a song called China Clipper, and there was a restaurant in Burbank called the China Clipper that the oh. um, that the cast was notorious for hanging out at. <laughs> oh. Oh, okay. It's not there anymore, was, but uh, it was uh, a real famous Chinese restaurant. Oh, I, no, I had never heard of that. Yeah. I'm glad you told me that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I never knew L.A. very well. Mm-hmm. I've been there a couple of times, but uh, uh, not so I can really find my way around there. Yeah, it's a big place. Uh, uh, Mark, Martin Denny was managed by the uh, company called uh, Gabby Lutz, Heller, and Loeb, and they also managed uh, Mel Torme, of all things, uh-huh. and, and uh, uh, a few other people. And... Uh, yeah, he he uh, got them interested in Ethel, and they booked her into Ye Little Club in Beverly Hills, and that was her first mainland job. Mm. And I uh, I went over there with her to, uh, as, as immoral support. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> uh, I I should mention this about Ethel, you know, since well she she did any exotic album, mm-hmm. but since she was handled by the uh, by the same company, Gabby Lutz Heller and Loeb. Uh, they booked her into the Sahara in Vegas with Mel Torme. Oh, really? And, and they did duets. Oh. I mean, he, he, he did solo singing, and, he, and she did a little bit of solo singing in, in the lounge of the Sahara. And, and uh, she she told me about what he did, because he, he was, as far as I'm concerned, he was a genius. So going back so, to... Um the shell bar with Reigns, you were in there at the same time as Alfred Apaka. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, then okay, I'll tell the Sonny Burke story then. <laughs> uh, so, Sonny Burke came over to record Alfred, uh, and uh, he heard our group and said, hey, let's combine the groups behind Alfred. And so I did a couple uh, arrangements for that, too. And it, uh, it, it, uh, Alfred, uh, uh, passed away shortly after that. Mm. He, uh, we were rehearsing with, uh, oh, we got into Don the Beachcombers for a while. And we were rehearsing one morning, and I think it was April of 1960. And, and, uh, somebody came into, into, uh, Don the Beachcombers and said, Alfred Apaka just had a heart attack at playing uh, handball at the YMCA, and he's no longer with us. Oh. And, and so that album 
became part of a larger like a double album called the best of alfred apocalypse wow and and uh that was recorded in the dome and at that time there was no piano in the dome and so uh i took my little celeste over and wrote myself some parts on some of the arrangements and i ended up when he was singing uh i I can never remember whether it's you are beautiful or she is beautiful from Mm -hmm. a flower drum song I ended up with an eight-bar marimba solo on it. So it was the gig at the Shell Bar uh, with Alfred p- playing in the Topper Room. What got you guys onto the Decca label, right? Right. And now I, uh, now I think Gene did a total of three albums. I was only on the first one. Uh huh. <laughs> because in the, we went on the road in 1960. Uh, we uh, we played six weeks at the Edgewater uh, Beach Hotel in Chicago, and I tell people that I experienced. I tell people from Chicago that I actually experienced six weeks of good weather in Chicago <laughs> from, from the middle of June to the end of July in 1960. And, uh, and then we, we went to uh, Vegas and did four weeks there in August. Uh, and uh, Gene would occasionally call a 1.30 afternoon rehearsal. And uh, so I'd, I'd get up and start walking, walking past the Sahara which had on the outside of it a, a combination clock and a thermometer. And as I was uh, going to the 1.30 rehearsal, the temperature was, I don't know, the time was 1.12, and then the temperature came up 1.12. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they changed at the same time. The temperature became 1.13, and the time became 1.13. Then we went to uh, uh, Reno and, and uh, did a job at Newt Crumley's Holiday Hotel. And then came, and now it's getting to be late autumn, and then came Denver, uh, Mile High, uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, it got very cold in Denver, and when it started to snow, I had a gig waiting for me back here in Honolulu, so that's when I gave notice, and it didn't left Gene. <laughs> so that's my Gene Rain story. Interesting. So it was it was the weather that that got you out of there. And back to Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> At that time of year, I wouldn't be gone anywhere else. I don't think. <laughs> so then, so then, when you went back to Hawaii, was that when your uh, your solo record was recorded? Oh yeah, uh, that's uh, the guys from Mahalo Records had uh, had been recording a lot of uh, local talent. And uh, but they didn't have anything exotic, and they said that uh, that, that stuff was was uh, commercially valid and valuable. Mm-hmm. And so they said, uh, "Can you get a group together and uh, uh, write some stuff 
for it and uh, record it. And so we did. I'm trying to remember where we recorded. It was a, it was an auditorium somewhere. <laughs> I can't, really, can't remember where it was because there, there weren't really great recording facilities in Hawaii mm-hmm. at that time. What year was uh, that well, recorded? That would have been oh, early '60s. That's mm-hmm. as close as I can come to an answer. Hey, you, you want to record with us? We'll, we'll, we'll get some high school auditorium and set up our equipment and record <laughs> you. <laughs> Well, it's it worked. It it was a it was a yeah. really good album, and it and it's still sought after Thank today. Uh, and and I I got to arrange some of the stuff that I liked and didn't get to arrange for either Arthur or Marty. <laughs> uh. So so it, it, I liked it in that respect. In two of your own songs for that album too, right? Yeah, yeah, a couple, a couple things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Mejiro was on, on that album. Mm-hmm. And, and Mejiro, uh, I haven't seen a Mejiro for a few years. We had a couple in our neighborhood out here. It's a little green bird, very small, like the size of a wren, maybe, and mm-hmm. nice little song that it sings. Did you keep in touch with Gene at all after after you uh, left? N- not really. I, I think I heard... Well, the, the group went on for a while. Uh, they even worked Cape Girardeau, Girardeau, I guess, which is either Missouri or Illinois, somewhere okay. up there, uh, with Mississippi River. So, and they, well, they stayed together long enough to do two more albums, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and then, then I think I heard a rumor somewhere that he was selling Cadillacs in Seattle or somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> He was a salesman. He was a hustler. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's it's interesting because there's very little known about him. I mean, you know, the the liner notes don't say much, and uh, I mean, the oh, stuff yeah. you've told me is probably more than 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 most people know. He wasn't a weirdo. I mean, he, he was uh, <laughs> not a heavy drinker or a heavy smoker or anything like that. No drugs. Uh, and and, and had, a, had a very attractive girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if they ever got married or not. Hmm. And and, and uh, he, he was pretty fair, and uh, you know, he never tried to give us any financial problems or anything like that. Uh-huh. You know, he, he, I, I think he's, he's the way you might expect an Air Force sergeant to be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the I got to say, the arrangements you did for Lotus Land were really 
really fantastic, and it's quite a nice album. And with the fact that you know one side is uh, is basically a whole track, how they kind of meld together. Into, oh yeah, uh, uh, now I didn't do all the charts for it, uh, but I probably did at least half of them. Mm-hmm. I think I did the, the chart on lovers and money spending thing, uh, money spending thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love is a money spending thing. I, uh, I, I did our arrangement of the wedding song, Hawaiian wedding song, because uh, I had heard Alfred Apaka and Emma Veri do it together, and it was so perfect, but I wanted to give it a little more of a jazz feel, and so that's, that's where that came from. Yeah, great versions of yeah. those songs on that album, by the way. Yeah, I think uh, I think for this album, Gene might have done more of the choice than I did, but I did do, I'm pretty sure I did Hana Mali. Yeah. And as you say, the uh, the liner notes are kind of uh, sketchy. Yeah. So now, after after your stint playing um, playing Exotica, then uh, you got into what was it? It was a Dixieland band. I guess it was also early '60s that there uh, there was an entertainment director at the Hawaiian Village Hotel. Here we are back at the Hawaiian Village, <laughs> uh, uh, who decided that there should be. A, uh, a Dixieland session on Sunday afternoons. And uh, it started out uh, with, with a group of local guys, some of whom knew a little bit of Dixieland and mm-hmm. some who didn't. And she decked them out in uh, turn-of-the-century bathing suits. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I got on there for a while, uh, just as a substitute. And, 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 but it was a popular thing. People were coming, uh, filling up the uh, this garden bar. It was you know three hundred capacity on Sunday afternoon. Wow! And and, and then uh, when the leader of the group was Trummy Young, now do you know that name? No, I'm not familiar. Trummy Young was Louis Armstrong's trombonist for years and years. Oh, he was from New Orleans originally. He had Hawaiian connections because I think it was during the war. He probably he probably was here for you know military reasons or something, and married a local lady mm-hmm. and had uh, had a couple daughters by her. Because uh, when Trummy took over as leader, he made me the other uh, every other week pianist on the Dixieland group. Yeah, the every uh, other week. He, yeah, there was a Chinese guy that he liked the way he played uh-huh. too. So he was he, he was the every other week. <laughs> Trappers was a very popular uh, nightclub in the. Uh, uh, Hawaii Region Hotel. I had been playing solo piano in there for a while, um, happy hour, mm-hmm. like five to seven or something like that. And and uh, they they were happy with my piano, but uh, they said, hey, we want to expand a little bit, maybe have a group, maybe a Dixieland group. And I said, okay, you keep me and you, and then you, you can get uh, the New Orleans Jazz Band of Hawaii. But but the, 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 the Dixieland thing was a side thing because during most of the 60s, 
uh, I was a ranger accompanist for Anne McCormick, the singer. She had she had fronted for Sinatra or Oakland or whatever you want to call it in Australia, and she had been in the Hollywood starlet and had done some singing there too. When, when Sinatra came back from Australia, she came back too, but stopped in Hawaii and met the owner of a, of a restaurant called the Embers, and and uh, they got together. And he, he he was her third husband. He had one of those little grill your own steak places on Seaside Avenue, and then he decided, okay, let's let's expand here. So he got another place called it the Embers, uh-huh. and uh, it was a steakhouse, but it wasn't grill your own. It had a ninety person capacity, and he she sang Friday and Saturday nights, and then the piano player played piano bar the rest of the week. And uh, but they had heard what I had done with Ethel, uh, Ethel Zama. And at that time, I was with Gene Rains, and that's when I went on the road with Gene. But they say, when you get back, you can come to work at the Embers. And that's how I knew I had a gig waiting for me in Hawaii when it started snowing in Denver. Oh, that was the gig you had waiting for you, huh? Yeah. Oh, nice. And uh, and so uh, it ended up... Uh, uh, it, uh, it ended up with just piano and bass on Friday and Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never, I never could, could agree with guitar players on chords. <laughs> <laughs> but and it was, and it was this, the same bass player that had been uh, with the Gene Rains group before he went on the road. He didn't take the thing. It, it's the same bass player that's on the first album. Oh, okay. And, and but we did a lot of uh, current show stuff and a lot of old standards. And and, uh, and then I played piano by the rest of the week. Well, let me ask you. Uh, I, you know, I hate to branch off here, but oh, do uh, do do! You're, you're, you're the band leader. <laughs> well, I just, I, I just wanted to ask you. It just literally popped into my head because you were in Hawaii during the you know the the real heyday, and and you seem to know just about everybody who was who was anybody in the music scene there, did you ever perform for the Hawaii Calls show? No, but um, Webley Edwards was the uh, MC of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to know Webley fairly well. And uh, somebody, it might have been Capitol Records, wanted, they came over and the A&R guy said, uh, uh, we want to do a, a soft album of... Uh, instrumental Hawaiian songs, no words, but maybe with some choral singers singing oohs and ahs in the background mm-hmm. and some strings. And Webley Edwards was going to be the producer of that. And and, uh, and then at the last minute, they decided that the budget wouldn't really permit a whole string section, so they decided to use a Hammond organ <laughs> and make it, try and make it sound as stringy as they could. Uh-huh. And I became the Hammond organist oh, really? for that album. Okay, now... In 1991, I think I might have told you about going to Japan for a gig, right? <laughs> yes. And I took my 21-year-old son with me as a drummer. He and I, uh, we, we spent a lot of time during the day together in Japan. And we were in a department store, and we were going up the escalator, and there was music playing. And he said, hey, listen, Dad, that's Hawaiian, isn't it? I said, you know what you're hearing? You're hearing your father playing Hammond organ. <laughs> they were playing <laughs> your music in the elevator. <laughs> well, no, no. It was, actually, it was on an escalator. I mean, it was oh. going over the whole store. Yeah, oh. you, you could call it elevator music, but yeah. Uh, and and uh, yeah, it was on the music. Uh, the, the album was called Romantic Instrumentals of the Islands. Okay. 
Yeah. And and, and there were uh, uh, a bunch of oh, in fact, a lot of the guys were the same guys on Alfred's album. Really? Yeah, because those guys were you know the old time standard mm-hmm. Hawaiian musicians. The ones that you, you call when you want to hear the real stuff, yeah. and and but there were some also some who and ah singers in the background too. <laughs> and then me on organ. You know <laughs> and, I have that record. A, I'm going to have to pull that out oh, and listen to it. Romantic instrumentals of the islands. Yes, I have it. Oh, oh, great! Well, it's me on organ. Oh, great! That's fantastic. <laughs> See, yeah. there's there's even more stuff I had no idea. I do. Oh, let's just talk about what you're doing now. You 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 told me you're doing uh, Japanese weddings, right? Yeah. In fact, I had one today. Uh, sometimes I, I do anywhere from thirty to. Well, I had one wedding. October last year, I had 103 weddings. Wow. Uh, besides the Japanese weddings, I have two gigs that are next door to each other, but not connected to each other. Oh. Uh, uh, the uh, the uh, Christian Science Church. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm not a Christian scientist, but I am. Uh, I, my the faith that I follow is is sort of an offshoot of Christian science called re- religious science. I think I told you that. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And then right next door to it, within 50 yards, my initials are PC, so I have to be politically correct. <laughs> and, and you don't and you don't call it an old folks' home; it's a retirement community. Okay. And I and I've been playing a, a, an hour every Friday there for 18 years. And it's not a volunteer thing. They ask me well, fantastic. to do it, and we're going to pay you this. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. So you sound like you are really busy. You must have one heck of a date book. Well, no, it's not, not that much. No? Uh, I mean, you know, there's, uh, 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 there's just the, the Friday thing and the church thing, uh, which is Sundays and Wednesday nights. Good for you. Uh, At least you're still going. That's a good thing. I mean, yeah. you, you're doing uh, that many Japanese weddings. That's 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 a lot of gigs. Yeah. When people ask me how long they take, I say it's because of how long the uh, the, the non-Japanese minister can how, how fast he can read the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Paul yeah. Conrad, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh well, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed this a whole lot, and and, uh, and I'll say it in in your in your home tongue, Aloha. Okay. <laughs> big mahalo to Paul Conrad for joining me here at a visit. Also, a big mahalo out to Randy Poe for actually finding Paul Conrad and giving me his info. My Mai Tai is empty, and that means we've come to the end of another visit here at The Quiet Village. want to remind you that you can visit The Quiet Village anytime by going to digitiki.com, where you can listen to Quiet Village Radio, streaming tiki music 24-7, or you can click on the podcast button, get a complete list of songs on this and past episodes, and you can also visit the collector's corner and see what has been reissued digitally, including Paul Conrad's Exotic Paradise album. Until next time, I'm going to leave you with a bit of music from Exotic Paradise. This is the perfect song for wrapping up the visit. I'm going to leave you with Paul Conrad performing a song, Paradise. Until next time, everyone, aloha. Aloha.